This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Science Notes, a programme on Otago Access Radio brought to you by the Science News and Promotion Group at the University of Otago. Join me, Dave McMorrin, as I chat with graduate science students. We'll find out about their research, why they do science at all, and what music they enjoy. Science Notes, Thursdays from 6.30 to 7pm, only on Otago Access Radio. Well, good evening, and welcome to Science Notes again for another week. My name's Dave McMorrin, and this week our guest is Stephanie Brown. Hi, Steph. Hi, Dave. Thanks for coming along. Um, I've been working on Steph coming on the show for a while now, um, and it's a new thing for us because um, for the show because I'm interviewing someone I'm related to, um, so that's exciting as well. Um, Steph's doing a PhD. It's in human nutrition, is it? Or it's in dietetics, sorry. Well, actually, it's through the Department of Pediatrics Medicine. Yeah. Um, because um, because of the the um, topic that it's basically right. About. Okay. So you, yeah. your your degree was in dietetics. It was. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And now a PhD yeah. in, in pediatrics. Nice. So we're going to be talking about that tonight. Um, but we'll start off as we do with the first bit of music that Steph's brought along, which is which is Ben Harper, Diamonds on the Inside. Okay. I knew a girl Her name was Truth She was a horrible liar She couldn't spend One day long But she couldn't be satisfied When you have Everything you have, everything to lose. She made herself a better nails, and she's planning on putting it to use. But she had diamonds on inside.
change comes as a relief Let the giver's name remain unspoken She is just a generous thief You're listening to Science Notes on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM, where this week we're talking with Stephanie Brown, who's doing a PhD um, through Otago, but in fact you're based up in Christchurch, the medical school up in Christchurch, aren't you? Yep, that's right, yep. So how was it then that you've ended up in Christchurch, even though you're at Otago, doing a PhD? Well, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Um, as, as you already know, Dave, like I am Canadian born, but um, my dad is actually from New Zealand and I moved over here um, at the sprightly young age of 18 to actually attend Canterbury University um, and I ended up staying. So I've been here for longer than I have been living in Canada, um, which is scary. And um Yes, I did a BA there and then worked in hospitality for a few years, um, which is where I met my now husband, whom is your relative. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And um, yeah, went back to school, went down to Dunedin and did um, nutrition nutrition undergrad and then um, master's in dietetics and now um, a part-time PhD, which I'm finishing up in 2023. Okay. Yeah. And so your PhD is in something which is nutrition and diet related, uh-huh. but specifically it's in something that I, I suspect, unless you're you are unfortunate enough to have first-hand experience with it, it's not something you really know about at all. So it's uh-huh. in inflammatory bowel disease, but in kids. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So... I embarked on this because my current job um, at the um, Canterbury District Health Board is um, pediatric gastroenterology dietitian, and um, I work predominantly with um, children with inflammatory bowel disease. Um, and nutrition is a really big part of um, actual induction therapy for these children. They go on a eight-week liquid diet when they're first diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And, yeah, so they have a lot of nutrition input um, right. from the get-go. So how old are the kids? Oh, sorry. How old are the kids yeah, when no. you first, um, when they, when they're <clears throat> typically when they're diagnosed? Well, we can have what's called early onset diagnosis, which is pretty atypically young, age three, four, right. in fact. Um, but we, I guess on average, would see maybe the 10, 11, 12-year-olds be diagnosed, I want to say. Um, but typically, in our service, it would go from your really young to up to the age of 16, and then they transition to adult services. Right. So yeah. does, it, <clears throat> does it manifest, well, do, do the kids realize they've got it 
when they start eating certain sorts of food as they, as they get older and they sort of transition more from milk into hamburgers and stuff is that how they uh-huh. find out or um so i guess um diagnostic presentation i guess it can differ um but essentially we're looking at mainly um la- loss of appetite right. and um anorexia type okay. symptoms right. weight loss and potentially or most often lots of um abdominal pain right so they know they're not well and then their parents will start on this journey of getting a diagnosis. Yeah. All right. So so your angle then um, is from a, a trying to change the diet um, to alleviate the symptoms? Because I think in the notes you sent me, um, there is no cure for this. Is that right? No. Yeah, that's right. So the aim is, is to try and, and alleviate the symptoms as best you can. Absolutely. So I guess a large body of the research shows that um, part of the cause for inflammatory bowel disease, or I guess not the cause, but essentially something that exacerbates or perhaps plays a role in getting diagnosed in the first instance is a westernized type diet, um, along with genes and many other things. But um, what we typically see is um, a lot of sort of short-term uh, diet therapies that we that we sort of um, prescribe to these children. So as I said um, before, is they will embark on an eight-week liquid diet on a using a polymeric formula, which is basically um, consists of whole proteins and it's nutritionally complete, but it also has anti-inflammatory properties. Right. And it is more efficacious than corticosteroids in terms of side effects and treating the inflammation in the first instance. So we spend a lot of time with these children, sometimes doing multiple courses of this um, throughout their childhood. Um, And then also as adjunctive therapies. So they'll be on medical maintenance, but then also we might need to look at their nutrition in general as they grow older and older. absorption issues if they're having flares and so on so yeah I, mean, I, I suppose you know when you say about you want to do this rather than having things like steroids and stuff i suppose a big part of mm-hmm. this is that if you if you do have a i mean even your normal kid who shows up when they're about 10 mm-hmm. um because it's not curable you're looking for something that's going to do them for 60 70 years potentially you can't yes. really do steroids for 70 years that's just <laughs> it yeah exactly so so does so is is the 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 idea that they just find different ways of eating forever not presumably not the liquid diet the whole time but yeah Mm. that's a really good question and some of what is sort of just the tip of the iceberg in research at the moment are there are several different prescriptive diets using whole foods emerging at the moment um whereby you know we're only just they're only just publishing initial um, randomized control trials. And I think it's not one size fits all. I think that um, if someone decides to embark on these sort of um, whole foods diet, whole food diets, whereby remission is kind of kept um, under control, you know, um, it's like, it's not an easy decision. It's um, very strict and they're not allowed to cheat whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and 
only allowed certain foods and not other foods at all. So that's sort of a big emerging area in the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease, um, which involves, of course, dietetic knowledge um, to ensure children are maintaining their nutrition and growing properly. So it's actually a bit tricky because we are at the initial sort of stages of these diet um, diets being implemented um, across the world and Australasia um, specifically. So we're learning as we go as well. Mm. Um, and what I can see from that is that, you know, really they do have to be well monitored because some of the um, foods that they're, you know, not allowed are, they're going to miss out on socialization and and all sorts of things as yeah. a young child. Yeah. So, yeah. So it, yeah. It, it's a sort of thing that I suppose the, the family and the parents have a big role to play in it. Is, is this something yeah. that, you, that complicates things or...? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, and they, the parents definitely have to be on board. And we have some families that do eat this certain diet or lifestyle changes they make, you know, as a family. Yeah. Um, to kind of, I guess, alleviate some of those stresses. But, um, it, you know, we've had families decline doing it because of the the um intensity it involves yeah. so yeah yeah so yeah it's just a really um sort of interesting area to work in there's a, there's a lot more as- sort of aspects to it i suppose than, than some sorts of medical research where you've just got a patient who's an adult and you can mm. just give them drugs and they can tell you what's going on there's all this other other aspects to it yeah absolutely yeah yeah definitely um one of the things you said in your notes was that you're trying to compare um, the kids with the IBD with their siblings. So are you trying to, is that, a, is that a comparison of giving them the same diets and seeing the effect of one compared to the other? Or Well, actually, um, our, the bulk of that, that research is um, sort of um, perspective observational. So what we've done is we have given them four-day food diaries to complete. Um, these are children from the same household. We want to see how the disease itself maybe impacts upon intake. Um, because technically speaking, you've got two children in the same shared food environment uh, being offered the same foods, um, except that one has, you know, this chronic illness. And um, this sort of research hasn't been looked at yet in children. Um, you know, we've we've seen research that has showed comparisons with children with IBD and a healthy cohort of unrelated children. Right. But here we're looking at sort of, you know, of diet and intake changes um, in the same households. Yeah. yeah. And we have our preliminary data sort of collected and analyzed and it just, you know, needs to be written up basically. But um yeah it is quite interesting and there are again lots of psychosocial things mm. at play here um that i think need to be really widely considered with these kids yeah i mean yeah. you know like like you were saying it's it, you can't really 
easily tell teenage kids to not go and eat KFC and McDonald's, even if it's exactly. not good for them, because in some respects mm-hmm. they already know it's not good for them. But um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, there's the, you know there's there's a balance, and um, yeah, it makes it that much more complicated, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what we also see is the other end of the spectrum is actually kids can be fearful of eating certain mm. foods because it might affect their symptoms or or they think it might affect their symptoms. They're just basically, you know, developing some sort of Ill, um, anxiety around their illness, which can impact upon their food choices. And then, of course, their overall nutrition. So, yeah, it's really interesting to see Um what we also see, though, and in a recent study that we um, that we just presented at the New Zealand Gastro Symposium was the food-related quality of life in children. Um, and again, we compared this to their healthy siblings and um, and a healthy control group. And we still see that siblings are in the middle, so they're somewhat impacted by potentially we don't know, but what's going on with their ill sibling around food so um yeah it is quite interesting Mm. to sort of see that there is an impact on food related quality of life is there much of a a parallel between the sorts of situations that your your patients find themselves in and kids with celiacs absolutely um it's actually quite interesting because um we I mean, our kids, we don't, our children that we work with, with inflammatory bowel disease, we don't tell them to restrict any foods. Um, We recommend a balanced whole foods approach to eating, but of course, everything in moderation, letting them be kids, go to birthdays, have the um, sometimes foods, we call them sometimes, um, and just sort of trying to create that healthy relationship with food as they grow. With celiacs, of course, we know they need to completely avoid gluten lifelong to maintain their symptoms. Um, But what we generally see is that we can have, um, or I think there's a greater risk of children with IBD then going on to develop celiac disease or vice Mm. versa. Mm. So there is some sort of uh, genetic component there. different dietary treatments but um actually there is some lots of work going into celiac children with celiac disease at the moment um as well and looking at what goes on there in the household and food environment yeah yeah. we do know though that overall um these diseases that are lifelong definitely impact on the child's well-being um yeah so it is yeah, it's definitely interesting from that point of view, and I think something that I guess needs to be more invested in from yeah. a treatment point of view. Yeah. So. So, I said at the start we could talk for hours, and we could, yeah, but we can't. <laughs> We're just a bit out of time. Um, so you're you're doing it part time, so you've got a wee way to, wee way yes. to go yet. So um. But you, but I suppose often often I say to students, um, so when you when you graduate, what are your plans? But you have plans because you're already working in the field as well, right? Yeah. Well, um, my supervisor, um, Prof. Andrew Day, um, is also the pediatric gastroenterologist that I work with at the hospital, and yeah, he's been great, really encouraging and supportive, actually, and 
provided a lot of opportunities for me with this PhD. So yeah, I mean, it's just actually made me invest, I think, more in my actual job. Um, I love getting to work with these families so much. We see some of them literally from age, say, three or four, when they're typically diagnosed um, with early onset all the way through. And you get really close with them. Um, and yeah, it's quite rewarding. Um, so just in that respect, knowing more about what I'm doing with my actual already career, you know, is quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. But it's also, I think, important as well um, to be able to know more about the actual medical conditions. Yeah. And yeah, so. Cool. Well, yeah. um, thanks for coming along. Thanks for telling us about what you've been up to. All the best for the remainder of the study part of it, at least. Thank you. We will finish with Steph's second piece of music, which is... Um, the Flaming Lips. Um, Yoshimi battles the pink robots. Okay. Thanks, Steph, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you.
Science Notes, a program on Otago Access Radio, brought to you by the Science News and Promotion Group at the University of Otago. Join me, Dave McMorrin, as I chat with graduate science students. We'll find out about their research, why they do science at all, and what music they enjoy. Science Notes, Thursdays from 6.30 till 7pm, only on Otago Access Radio. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.